hang in there. We're going to be okay. We're in it together, okay? You know, it's, we get together together. We have a warm place to meet and enjoy each other's company. And God's got it under control. Tonight, if you turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 24, we start a three-chapter series. And all three of them have the same basic outline of things that happens in them. There are the three very different rulers, and we start tonight with this ruler Felix. And and I I want to remind you that as Christians, our walks, the words we say and the lives we live, must be lived out in the public square. What we are in private is what we must be in public. You cannot divest doctrine from duty. You can't believe one way when you're sitting here in church and another way when you talk to your friends about politics. You cannot be something different in the voting booth than you are when you're in the children's nursery room. We have been called to be salt and light in this world. And in these three chapters, we find Paul in a very easily identifiable place to where it would have made all the rational sense in the world for him to compromise his biblical, Christ-like view. He could have gotten out of what was going on in his life if he had simply backed away from being so strong about his faith. He does not do that. And in fact, these next three chapters actually give us a a view into public life for the believer. What we ought to be as we confront the issues of our day, as we talk to politicians as we live out our lives in our community. And and I would remind you that the world that Paul wrote in was a Roman world, a decidedly Roman world. And that Roman world had benefits, and it also had some very difficult things, especially if you were a Christian. The Pax Romana, the Roman peace, ruled the world at that time. The Romans had bought, had brought a road system that connected most of the known world all the way into Great Britain. Um, They had brought largely at least a measure uh, of some type of public assistance for most people. There was much less poverty than there was uh, in the previous reign of the Babylonians and the Greeks, the Medes and the Persians. In some ways, the Romans brought uh, a modicum of prosperity. But what the Romans also brought was a tremendous persecution and intolerance for Christians. And Paul knows that. He's a Roman citizen, as we saw the last time we were together in chapter 23. And so tonight, the first person that speaks against Paul, uh, shouldn't surprise us, is an attorney. Uh, It's a lawyer, and he's the worst kind. He's a Jewish attorney. A Jewish lawyer, and my friend Jeff Dorman would tell you the same thing. So, as we dig into this chapter tonight, chapter 24, and we'll basically take the next three chapters one at a time, 
I want to really encourage you. There's some tremendous practical application to be found in these particular chapters with how we live out our lives and very specifically in the area of sanctified boldness in the world that we live in. And I pray that we glean from it tremendously. And so would you pray with me as we offer this word up to the Lord that he would speak to us through it. Father God, we want to be encouraged tonight. Lord, we need to be strengthened. So much going on in our country and in our world. Lord, we live in a day and time that's not horribly different. Lord, the situations may be different, but Lord, the underlying problem is very much the same. And we have a a world that is against you. And we have a world that desperately needs salvation through Christ Jesus. And we pray that as we study your word tonight, that you would speak to us through it, that you'd bless us as we do so, uh, that our lives would be encouraged and strengthened for the days that are ahead. That you'd use this time, Lord, for your perfect plan in each of us. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Begins here in verse 1, it says, Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator, and that word that's translated their orator is the Greek word retoros, and retoros would be translated almost any other time were it to be found in the Greek language as attorney or lawyer or advocate is another word. It's only found here in the New Testament. And it seems to be very unique to this one individual. And so this certain lawyer named Tertullus gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And so it wasn't bad enough that the Jewish religious leader ganged up on him. It wasn't bad enough that he was falsely arrested for a handful of things, which are going to get reiterated here. Now they're going to bring in actual hired guns. They're going to bring in the strongest cases that they possibly can against the Apostle Paul. And again, the net desire of the Jewish religious leadership is to see Paul killed. That's what's at stake. That's what Paul is going to eventually address in this chapter. And so the case is now going to be made against him by a professional. Can I help you understand this a little bit? The case against Christians right now is being made by so-called professionals. You have them in Washington in the form of lobbyists. You have them in our educational system in the form of agnostics, people too smart to believe in Jesus Christ. You have the case being made against Christ all over the world because the way is narrow that leads unto life. And few there are that find it. And so much the same situation exists in our world today. There are professional persecutors of the cause of Christ. They still exist. You're going to run in them. In fact, you may be paying uh, very large sums of money for your children to be taught by them. You may well be investing your tax dollars in them. Uh, can I remind you, I can, save the, I can save us right now tonight with a stroke of a pen. I could save the federal government a little over... million by defunding one organization. That's Planned Parenthood. Your tax dollars go to that, but the church won't stand up. That's a very minor voice. Can I tell you something? That 98.24% of all the counseling that's done by Planned Parenthood ends in an abortion for a woman. Now, I say that, and you know what's going to happen? Oh, well, you're bringing politics into the church. No, I'm saying that God hates those who are swift to shed innocent blood. 
what His Word declares. And see, I have to say that. And that's just one example. Can I tell you that also that organization is one-third of its budget comes from tax dollars? You, you, you see, as I say those things, there are going to be professional lobbyists in Washington, D.C. who have the other opinion. And they have a very loud voice. And they'll say things like Harry Reid said today, Oh, you want to kill women? No, hardly. Not only do I not want that, what I'm actually desiring is what God desires, is that innocent life be spared. You see, but the voices of the professional that comes against the things of God very often are extremely loud. Notice what it says. Here he says that Ananias, the high priest, and the lawyer, Tertullius, along with several Jewish religious leaders, are in essence taking the public seat. They're going to get the first voice. How often does that happen, still in our world? That the louder voice is not the voice of the Christian, is not the voice of God, in essence, through people who love him. It's the other voice. Verse 2 And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace. Now, does that sound like an accusation to you? I want you to notice what happens here initially first. Um, There are lots, well, I can't even use some of the phrases that are in the back of my mind for what this is. It, it's, it's speech that's intended to flatter. It's you sitting around telling somebody how great they are because you agree with them. Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace, speaking, of course, uh, to the ruler Felix, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. Hey, is this just not like, ah, gag me? We accept it always, and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear, by your courtesy, a few words from us. This is the most despicable way to try and make a point. We call it flattery. And by the way, flattery is not a good thing in its context because flattery is always self-motivated. You're after something yourself, and so you tell someone else how great they are. You want them to agree, you know, you, you, you tell them, oh, you look so wonderful. Can I have the car keys? Mom, did I tell you how young you look? And can I invite my friends over to play video games? You see, it's selfish. It begins the case before the Roman governor, and and this is, it seems as though, by the time we get to the next little passage here, that he takes almost as much time inflating Felix as he does explaining what Paul did. This is a, a classic tactic of deception. You kind of wave the hand and, oh, well, you're really great. No, by the way, this guy did this. Flattery is even more sickening when you get the historical record of who this governor Felix actually was. He was a very debauched individual. Uh, this 
orator that's speaking here is basically lying about his character and lying about his nature and lying about the condition of most people. He was saying these things for his own personal gain and to gain an audience with the king. These people exist to this day. One of the most putrefying things about going to Washington, D.C. is seeing how it actually works. That if you drive uh, to the north side of Constitution Avenue and you get between there and New Jersey, almost everything that exists on that side of Washington, D.C. is the offices of lobbyists. People whose job is to try and persuade other people to a different viewpoint than they currently hold. And they will say anything to get that done. They will lie, cheat, steal, and deceive. Interesting thing happened with our current census. One of the things that was being at least looked at was gender orientation during this sentence, this census. This census. On the East Coast, there were actually some additional questions that were optional that were asked. And you've all heard lately that perhaps as much as 10% of the United States is has homosexual tendencies. You know what the actual number is from the census? It's 0.04%. That's what the census number is. So it isn't 10%. It's not even one-tenth of 1%. It's one-hundredth of 1%. But how often do we hear in the media? How often do we hear that anti-Christian rant? Because it's the Christians that are standing for God's order and design. Well, you know. You see, when we don't stand for the truth, then we stand, in essence, with those who are speaking the lie. And that's what was going on here. Tertullus makes these flattering opening remarks to a guy who is actually known principally for his corruption, uh, for his violence, and for his promotion of self. Verse 5, he goes on to say, now he actually gets to the charges. And I want you to notice it's about the same amount of time that he spent blowing up Felix. Uh, he, he now spends trying to tear down the Apostle Paul. For we have found this man, speaking of Paul, a plague. The word, the word there is actually loimon, and loimon means, in essence, a pestilence. Someone who is so horrible that they are deemed a menace to society. Now, do we know anything from what we've studied in the book of Acts that indicates that Paul did anything like that? And the answer is, of course, no. And in fact, most of the time that we find him, uh, he's anything but that. Exactly the opposite. We found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout all the world. Not only is that not true, he had just convinced at least the Pharisees to join his side. So half the people in attendance could go, well, that didn't actually happen. You know, so very often it's just the, the loudness of the voice that carries the day. It isn't the truth of the argument. And so he says, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, and they're referring not so much to the Nazarite vow, but to those of Nazareth. You know, this crazy group of people from the hill country outside of Jerusalem. You know, these whack job Okies from Muskogee that came, and they've now brought this ridiculous new form of religion. 
the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried, notice the word tried, would you circle that? So far, is there anything that he said, even though it's despicable, that would have warranted Paul's death? The answer is no, not by Roman law, not by Jewish religious law. And they still don't. The number one thing they had against Paul was the fact that he may have dis- he he supposedly defiled the temple. Not only did he not defile the temple, he actually was bringing, and he's going to make his own case for this, he was actually bringing an offering for the poor Jews in Jerusalem. He was doing exactly the opposite. And it says, he even tried to profane the temple and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. If that was true, they wouldn't have been able to do anything. That wasn't what they were after. That wasn't what they were doing. So very often the argument against truth is a lie. Because people don't like the truth. Matter of fact, Jesus put it this way. Men love the darkness. That's why they don't like the light. It's not that the light itself is bad. It's just that they love darkness. And so here we have very much that picture so he makes three basic cases against Paul. He was basically a troublemaker. Uh, he was the ringleader of this unrecognized religion. You know, they didn't, they didn't have any cards with them. They, they couldn't produce any credentials, any, you know, identity that was, that was known to those people that were in power. And they tried to desecrate the temple. And so these guys gang up, in essence, on Paul. The word that he uses here, sect, is actually the Greek word, same word that we translate into English, uh, heresy. So he's really calling him a heretic. He says, Paul's a heretic. Now, what's interesting to me is is this all this unfolds. Basically, it's just a bunch of name calling. And I want to draw your attention to that fact. That is, most of the time, the sum and the substance of the argument against Jesus Christ. Because when you look largely at what the church represents, what it stands for, what the true church says, and what the true church does, is there anything bad about it? The answer is no. Go to Haiti right now. Let me tell you a few things. You aren't going to find any Muslims. You're not going to find any Buddhists. You're not going to find any New Agers. You're going to find a whole bunch of Christians who are giving up their vacation time and pay to go minister to those poor people in Haiti. When I was in the Bahamas at the All Saints AIDS home, when I stopped by there, uh, the last time I was down there, there were nothing but Christians there. There weren't a bunch of agnostics and atheists because they don't believe that those people have any purpose because they're just the effects of human evolution. They probably deserve, some of them might say, to die. They only have value because of their value to God. But the name-calling that goes out against the things of the Lord is still prevalent. The only thing that we can do to combat this, folks, is to, to have integrity in Christ. To just live our lives as we've been commanded to do. You know, it, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good to get into ranting and raving arguments with people like this. Because they don't have any truth to stand on. Tertullus has no, he has no truth. There's not a stitch of truth to the arguments that he's made. Not one bit of it's true. 
It's all blown completely out of proportion and taken completely out of context. And you're going to find that if you stand for Jesus, these attacks will come to you as well. People are going to accuse you of all kinds of things. Narrow-minded and bigoted. You know, that's just, you Christians are all the same. All you want to do is make sure that the church has money. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. All the church is interested in money. That's why I don't go there. It's full of hypocrites. The whole world's full of hypocrites. The church has hypocrites in it too. Get over it. Amen? I think most people can identify with some time in their life where they've said something that was hypocritical. If you're a parent, you have said things hypocritical. Now, don't do that. Just because you did it 95 times, don't do that. It's hypocritical. And I want you to notice these next couple of verses. You will not find them in the Revised Standard Version or the uh, modern English versions of the Bible because in the oldest text, they're not there, but they're absolutely correct in context. Uh, New American Standard, I think, has it in italics. New King James leaves it in there because it makes sense in context, and it does make sense. Verse 7 begins, But the commander, Lysias, came came by with great violence and took him out of our hands. Remember what Lysias did? He didn't come with great violence. Or was it, again, totally not true? Commanding his accusers to come to you, and by examining him yourself that you may ascertain all things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. You, you see, the test of truth is often the test of time. And the test of truth is often the test of actual witnesses to the facts. And, of course, all of these references, uh, these things seem compelling until you actually talk to the people involved. He was being completely untruthful. These things did not happen. But as the old adage goes, if you tell a lie long enough, people begin to believe it. Uh, If you shout loud enough, people will take your side. If you do enough things to try and gain an army, eventually you will. Uh, These false charges need to remind us that just because you hear something does not mean it's true. I was talking to my son Brandon today. He's writing his term paper in his English class that he's in. And he's actually writing on the effects of the media in swaying public opinion. How many people believe things because they saw it on a news program on TV? And I was sharing with him. I said, there was a time, I believe, in this country when largely the things that you saw on the television news were true. And it's carried over. You go back to, you know, the Huntley Brinkley report and, you know, Charles Kuralt and some of these, some of the older news anchors that they would rather die than tell something that they hadn't personally verified as being true. That's not true now. And the reason it's not true is very simple. If you understand how the news media works, it's a multi-billion dollar business. And most of what they say, they say because it makes money. It gains advertisers. And if you look at the advertising on any given program, you can tell exactly what it is, type of morality, that that particular person basically believes in, because that's what they're supporting. And so you can see those things. But do you say it long enough? Oh, yeah, well, we're fine. You know, we just passed the budget resolution, and we're going to be okay. 
Oh, yeah, well, we still have the $50 trillion in debt, but, you know, it'll be all right. You, you, You see, people can speak things that seem like they're the truth because they speak it well. They hire a couple of attorneys. They put it on national TV. They write a blog about it. They produce two or three books validating their position. You need to test and see whether something's true. You need to actually check it out for yourself. You need to make sure that those things that are being said are actually truth. Verse 10 goes on to say, and then Paul. So Paul now is going to get an opportunity to answer, to speak to these things that have been said after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered. He says, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Notice how Paul says what he says. He doesn't inflate who he is. He just simply acknowledges that he's been a judge of the people for a while. He doesn't make any false uh, pretenses about who this man is. He also, at the same time, doesn't call him out in being evil. He's doing what we should do. He's being moderate, he's being kind, and he's being respectful. And so Paul sets the stage to speak the truth. Family of God, to speak the truth, you must have the audience of the people to whom you want to speak. And you can't do that by being a jerk. You you can't do it by simply ranting and raving the way the world rants and raves. You need to be respectful. Two years ago, I was on the steps of the Rayburn building in the Capitol, and I was there with a number of people from FRC, and it was shocking to me when I saw exactly how this works out in the public square. And I will tell you this, looking into your individual eyes. We were there because at the time, you may remember that the mayor of Washington, D.C., forced homosexual marriage onto the city of Washington, D.C., mandated it from his office with the help of the city council. They did not vote on it. They simply passed a city council resolution to say, we're going to do this in Washington, D.C. The people that showed up to protest that numbered in the hundreds, okay, in the hundreds. There were hundreds of us. Pastors, congressmen, all kinds of people out on the steps of the Rayburn building. We have a television audience. We have the news media there. And how many protesters do you think with the opposite view were there supporting what the mayor had done? There were exactly six people there. And they were dressed in placards. They were screaming and yelling. They were calling everybody blasphemous things I cannot even repeat to you. It was the most disgusting, despicable display of being exactly the opposite of what Paul is here. Who do you think made it onto the evening news that night? It was those six. There are hundreds of the opposition being respectful, quiet, giving the opinion with stats, with figures, making the case very, very clearly, and yet the the whack jobs get on national TV. You can't change your tactic because that happens. Because when you do, you lose your character. And when you lose your character, you lose your conscience. 
And when you lose your conscience, you don't feel right before the Lord. And so even though our side didn't get on the national news, the other side did, I know we did what was right. And we spoke that truth and we spoke it in love. It's all you got to do. God can work out the details. You know what happened? Even though that did happen, and even though it was the other side that got all the press, it got reversed. Because the people stood up, the majority stood up, the people who really were in the voting booth stood up, and they said, no, you're not going to do this. The truth eventually wins out. Sometimes it takes time. Stay true to the truth. Paul's going to answer for himself now. Verse 11, because you may ascertain... Uh, that there is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, and they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city, nor can they prove the things of which you now accuse me. He says, the truth's the truth. You can yank out all the witnesses you want. You can't corroborate what you just heard. Family of God, when you have lived a life of integrity... When you have spoken the truth in love, you can stand on the truth. That's all Paul's doing here. He says, I know what I did. I know exactly what happens. It was only 12 days ago. It isn't a mystery. I didn't mysteriously fall asleep and someone propped me up with a bunch of Gentiles inside of the court. It didn't happen. I was there myself, and you can go find hundreds of witnesses to that effect. Drag them in here, get all the people you want, but don't just take their word for it because they have evil gain to be had. And in fact, the implication really is, he says, only 12 days ago, how much trouble can you stir up in 12 days? I mean, come on. Is it, is it in essence, not a Roman city? Weren't there Roman guards? Wasn't I arrested, in essence, and put... Uh, in the Antonio Fortress by Romans. Basically, Paul said his accusers couldn't prove a thing that they said. But he could. The truth would bear out what he said. He says, verse 14, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and the prophets. Can you imagine him saying that? That's exactly the opposite of what, in essence, the Jewish religious leaders had expected him to say. I mean, if he could have said anything that would have stirred up more dissension amongst his accusers, I don't know what it would have been. Because basically he just said, you know what, I believe the Old Testament. Matter of fact, I believe the way that I believe, which is the way of Christ, was foretold in the Old Testament. And in fact, the things that the Old Testament teaches is exactly what Jesus did. So now you have, again, the Sadducees and the Pharisees fighting with each other. They're at each other's throats. Because David had foretold that there would be life after death, that there would be uh, uh, the Messiah would come and there would be someone who would never taste that final death of Sheol. He wouldn't be held there. Paul begins to answer that accusation of being the ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And as he does so, he just simply refers to the way. And, of course, he's talking about, likely he's talking about the, the name that probably came from what Jesus said in John 14:6. He said, I am the way 
and the truth and the life. And so it was the earliest name for the church, for the Christian church. I think that it also is referring back to the Old Testament because Isaiah chapter 40 also calls that which will be the way. In other words, the, the Messiah's way calls that the way. And so he hardly could be accused of being a heretic. And basically what he's saying is he said, if you want to trace back the genealogy of the way, you want to trace back the genealogy of the sect of the Nazarenes, you want to trace back the genealogy of what I stand for, Go look at your own Torah. Go pull out the Tanakh, the whole Old Testament. Go look at the Pentateuch, the five first five books of Moses. You want to find out what I believe? It's all in there. And they're all freaking out. They're all like, what are we going to say to that? He, he agrees with the law and the prophets. They're thumbing through their scrolls trying to find out what he's talking about. You see... They viewed the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the sacrificial system, as pointing to guess who? The Messiah. So all he's doing is saying, you're right, pointing to the Messiah. In other words, he's agreeing where he can agree with them. It's a great way to disarm people. When you get an argument, you know, if you spend a little more time trying to figure out how to draw them in instead of how to push them away, you're going to find out you have a little bit better result. The Christian gospel was not an aberration of of the old Jewish system. It was the completion of the old Jewish system. It wasn't something that was totally divested of all that was said in the Old Testament. It fulfilled spot on the Old Testament. So when they thought about what was going to happen with the Messiah, what did Isaiah say? The chastisement of his peace would be upon us. By his stripes we would be healed. Oh, that's right, this Jesus dude, he he got whipped, he was beaten, he was bruised for our iniquities. Oh no, you can you can imagine what they're saying. We got to get him out of here. Because the longer he talks, the worse we look. You see, studying the Old Testament gives you a tremendous appreciation for the new, and studying the old studying the new gives you an appreciation for the old. They're not contradictory, they're complementary. They're not at odds with one another. One validates the other. The Old Testament the Old Testament is simply revealed in the New Testament. What was going on in secret in the Old Testament is openly revealed in the New Testament. And so Paul begins to Peak their interest quite a little bit, I'm sure, by now. And he goes on in verse 15, and he says, I have hope in God. Can you imagine a Jew hearing that, what he's saying? I have hope in Jehovah God. And they're thinking, wow, you just came from the temple, and, you know, you were just wondering what he was doing in there. And in other words, Paul was declaring to them, he says, you know what? I, for all intents and purposes, am a completed Jew. I'm a Jew who is of the way. I didn't throw out my Jewishness. I just got completed in Christ Jesus as Lord. I have hope in God, which they themselves, and I wonder if he wasn't just pointing his finger, because remember, these guys all followed him. They're here. They've traveled. There's the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're on opposite sides. They'd be like Sadducees over here and the Pharisees over there. They're not associating with each other. And he looks there, maybe points at them, which they themselves also accept. 
that there will be a resurrection of the dead. So he's, now he's pointing at the Pharisees. He says, see that group over there? They believe exactly what I believe, that there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. So how can I be a criminal? And then he says something that probably blows him out of the water of the just and the unjust, of the righteous and of the unrighteous, of the saints and of the ain'ts. That everybody's going to be resurrected. The question is, where are you going to spend eternity after you're resurrected? That we were created as eternal beings in God's image. That, that this is not the end of life, this is the beginning of life, and eternity is a very, 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 very long time in which all of us will dwell. The question is, where? And so he says, these guys over here, they believe in the resurrection too. And I believe in the resurrection of the just and the unjust. You realize the Old Testament teaches that? And so what he says is, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. He said, I'm standing here before you in this public square speaking these things that are the truth. And I'm confronting what's been said against me. And I'm not accusing them. I'm just talking about myself. I'm telling you what I believe. I don't have anything false, false to accuse against these men. They'll speak for themselves. He makes this case, and you can only imagine now, again, stirred up the Sadducees and the Pharisees against one or the other. And they were beginning to dicker over these things. As Jesus rightly said in John 16, he said, when he comes, he'll prove the world wrong about sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the world likes to say there's no sin. The world likes to say that righteousness is, in essence, what you make of it. Basic existential philosophy. Uh, it matters what I believe, not what actually is. That there are no absolutes. That basically truth is a slideable scale based on what you believe it to be. That's not what the Bible teaches. is isn't what the Old Testament teaches. It's certainly not what the New Testament teaches. That the Lord Jesus, when he comes again, there is going to be a very definite dividing of the sheep and the goats. That there's going to be the righteous and the unrighteous, and there's not going to be anything in between. And there will have been sin, and he will judge in righteousness that sin. And so Jesus making that case, and Paul saying, you know what? That's what I believe. I believe what the Old Testament teaches. You know why he was doing that? Because that is exactly what the whole of the Old Testament system of Judaism taught. So the very guys that are bringing the accusation against him believed in the righteousness of God, in the justice of God, and the judgment of God. That was exactly what all those sacrifices pertained to. That they knew they were unrighteous, that they had to get righteous because God was going to judge it, and ultimately that that would produce something eternal that would result in, ultimately, resurrection unto life. That's what the Old Testament teaches. The only difference is, as Jesus said, I complete that process. I'm the one that makes it available to everybody by grace. So Paul is, in essence, agreed with his accusers on their theology. I agree with you. There's a righteous God in heaven 
who will one day judge all sin, and when he judges all sin, there will be a resurrection and a judgment. And now after many years, I love the way he does this. He doesn't, he doesn't look down at them and go, those rotten scumbags have falsely accused me. These festering maggots over here are just vile and I hate them with hot heaping hunks of hate and nothing they've said has been true. He doesn't even have to do that. All he does is speak the truth. And he actually does it very lovingly. He says, now after many years I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. He says, I care about the Jewish people. I'm one of them. He says, those are my brothers and sisters that I was trying to minister to. I didn't come here to stir up any trouble. I actually brought money to help the Jewish poor. Basically, he gave his main reasoning for being there. That collection for the saints in Jerusalem, for those who were in great need in this offering. You know where it came from? Do you remember where it came from? It came from the Gentile churches of Asia. He'd been out beating the bushes to go back and help the poor people in Jerusalem. And again, he could bring hundreds if not thousands of witnesses into court to that effect. Yeah, well, part of this money came from Ephesus. All the Ephesian guys come in. Yeah, part of it came from Philippi. All the Philippian guys come in. Yeah, yeah, well, we in Colossae gave to that as well. And, yeah, some of us in Athens. And pretty soon there's like 10,000 people out there. Yeah, we donated money too. Paul had it with him. Standing on the truth. And I'd imagine that Luke, as he wrote this account, was kind of compressing this whole courtroom scene into just the details. But here he was helping the poor. And in essence, what he was saying, because remember, the Jews believed in this. Again, he could tie it into his Judaism. They were supposed to help the poor. And here this guy who was of the sect of the Nazarenes was doing exactly what they were supposed to do, and they weren't doing it. That's why they were poor. Verse 18, And in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. He he said, not only was I not unclean, and not only did I not have Trophimus with me, which that was the accusation, remember, that he brought Trophimus in, who was a Gentile and had defiled the temple. said, some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple. Neither with the mob nor with tumult. He says, if you go back and ask the guys who were actually there, you're going to find out that I had actually done the purification rituals before I entered in, and there are people that could prove that to you. And they ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. You realize they didn't bring a single eyewitness to the event, and they were accusing Paul of something for which they could have taken his life? The truth wins out. Paul wasn't afraid. And I want you to notice something, too, in this whole passage of Scripture. Paul's trusting in the sovereign plan of God. You remember? And the Lord stood by him. He's going, man, I heard from God. I don't know how God's going to work this out, but I know what he's called me to be. He's called me to be a man of integrity. He's called me to speak the truth. He's called me to stand firm on the promises of God. And he's called me to be what I am, irregardless of what it looks like might be the outcome. 
Sometimes I wonder how weakened the church's position has come because we've compromised, and instead of speaking the truth, we have sought to compromise with the world so that the world will swallow what it is we have to say. If you're speaking the truth, can I remind you of something? The world's not going to like it a lot of the time. Matter of fact, the world's going to be completely against what you have to say. They're going to say all manner of things falsely against you. They did to Jesus, they will to you. But when you speak that truth in love, as Scripture declares, when you, when you don't do like these idiots do who get on the street corner with placards that have all manner of blasphemous things that declares who God hates in a, in a very mean-spirited, condemning way that has no measure of grace to it whatsoever. You, you see, if we go that way, we're not going to win anybody. We will manage to make most everybody angry and upset. And so what Paul is saying is, is you can accomplish more with love with the truth than you can with just the truth and volume. Verse 22, but when Felix heard these things, having a more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision in your case. Now, if there had been any possibility that Paul was going to be found guilty, it would have happened right here at this point. But there wasn't. And so you can really see the beginnings of the effects on the minds of this ruler. He had heard the truth, and the truth was overwhelming. And so rather than say, well, we're going to let you go, he does what most people who aren't very certain of their position do, and they defer it to another day. They wait. They, they wait to a more convenient time. You know, I'll wait till some more information comes in, and that's what he says. And so he commanded the centurion to keep Paul. I love this. You can tell exactly how weak his position is. He says, let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for him or to visit him. What he's really saying is, well, that didn't go like I thought it was going to go, and pretty much Paul's innocent. But because of the way these things happened, I'm not going to say that right here and right now. I'm going to kind of wait for some further information to come in, and maybe we'll find some reason then to condemn him. In other words, he hears the truth and doesn't act on it. And family, this is exactly what happens in the world. There are times when you can absolutely speak the truth, you can speak that truth in love, people have heard it, and, and they still won't believe it. They'll turn a blind eye and a deaf ear. They'll turn away from the truth and back towards the lie. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to simply speak the truth and to do that in love to tell them as it is and allow the Holy Spirit to work. It's really not recorded whether Lysias came to, to Caesarea or not. We don't believe he did. Uh, maybe he did, not sure. It seems to indicate that, it, that he may have, but it isn't really positive. I looked at it and I go, I don't really see it. But we know this. Paul was just simply kept in custody. He had all kinds of friends come and visit. That scrutiny was going to be passed along. And in fact, we're going to find out that his case gets kicked off to the next higher court of appeals. And ultimately, he's going to end up in Rome. 
And so each successive chapter, the next two, is kind of the one-upsmanship of the world trying to beat Paul into submission. And I love the fact that with each time, Paul actually has more to lose, and yet he still keeps speaking the truth. It seems more desperate, but he keeps relying on the Lord. You see, the governor, Felix, had all kinds of information. It appears that maybe through his wife or perhaps somebody else, he had heard of this group called the Way. He had heard of what it meant to be a Christian, but it hadn't affected him. And, and he falls in that category that uh, Luke, as he recorded in his gospel, he said, to, to whom much is given, much is required. He knew the truth, and he didn't act on it. Verse 24, and after some days when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, now notice he's married again to a Jewish woman, uh, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And so he actually gets a personal uh, time of evangelism from the Apostle Paul. And so he begins to speak, and now as he reasoned about righteousness, notice the topics here. This guy is so convinced that there's something different about Paul, though he does not make a decision to believe himself, he's so convinced he's got to know what gave this guy this boldness. Oh, in Jesus' name, may we have this type of witness in the world, that people would go, where in the world did they get that kind of boldness, and then ask these, these kind of questions that pick up in verse 25. And now as he reasoned about righteousness... And self-control, yeah, I'll bet he reasoned about self-control. Paul wasn't sitting there making all kinds of accusations against other people. He just simply told everything from his own personal point of view. He was completely in control. And the judgment to come, those are pretty heavy topics. I mean, that's not you know normally Christmas topics. Sitting around, everybody opening, hey, you know, what do you think about self-control and judgment to come? His mind had been affected by the things that Paul had said to the point that he's asking the hard questions. When people start asking you about eternal things, please tell them what you know about eternal things. And Felix was afraid and answered. Paul's sitting there sharing with him, and Felix is afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Paul's speaking these things to him. He's asking questions. He's been invited, in essence, to speak. And he's been given an audience, in essence, to speak the truth. But he couldn't take what was being said. You're going to find people do this. Well, you know, what about this Jesus guy? And you begin to share with them. You know, he declared of himself that he was the only way for man to see heaven. His word plainly declares, he said of himself, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. You're going to get a lot of what Felix said. I can't handle that right now. Just, you know, go away. Let's not talk. No more religion and politics. I'll call for you at a convenient time. You know what that's another way of saying? You pierced my heart, and I don't want to talk about it. You got through my shell, and I heard it, and I don't like what you said, because you might be right. You so turned my apple cart upside down that I don't want to talk to you anymore. Because those things which I was 
were hanging on to, those beliefs that I have. You, you tore up my belief system. We'll talk later. And meanwhile, he also hoped that, that money would be given him by Paul. He's looking for a bribe. You, you, you talk about just the total effect of the world. Do you now understand why Jesus said, and where a man's treasure is, there his heart will be also? They're talking about eternal life and judgment to come. And behind the scenes, and, and oh, by the way, can I have 50 bucks? I'll let you go. The piercing of the heart happened, and the only thing he cares about is the same dumb things that he cared about before he ever met Paul. A couple extra bucks in his pocket. That he might release him. He's actually asking for a bribe. And therefore he sent for him more often and conversed with him. He wasn't after the truth. He was actually after a few extra bucks so he could go down to the local day spa and get another facial. Or whatever they did in Roman times, I don't know. He wanted to go to Olive Garden and have the unlimited pasta feast. I don't know. I repent, I did that. We don't know. But the fact of the matter is, he wasn't concerned with eternal things. He was concerned with very temporal things, a couple extra bucks. Felix's career was marked by brutality and injustice, unrighteousness, and I can only imagine that the subjects of righteousness and judgment would be just a little bit more than uncomfortable to him. And so he's kind of hoping, hey, grease my palm with a couple of bucks, and you're out of here. Kind of like my time in Tijuana when I turned down a one-way street. Couldn't believe it. Folded up the money, stuck it with my driver's license. That cop swift pulled that cash. It was in his pocket. Don't do that again. Okay. That's all he was looking for. Felix wanted to keep his religion, and his religion was mammon, exactly what Jesus said. No man can serve two gods. And then he went to talk about money, didn't he? Felix was wrapped up in those material things that this life has to offer, and he wasn't concerned with the eternal things that were about to really be the issues of his life. And I love the fact that Paul personalized the gospel and gave it to him. Irregardless, notice again, Paul could have taken... Now notice what he said. The preface for this was, I have a collection to give to the people in Jerusalem. So he's telling them, I've got some cash. I, I got, you know, over there in my bag, I've got some money. Do you realize how easy it would have been for Paul to compromise in this situation? And he doesn't. I mean, really, what would have mattered? Okay, so the poor in Jerusalem are going to get a few less bucks. But I'll be out of here. I won't have to go to Rome. This is how God will get me out. Anybody else made those kind of deals with God? Well, I'll just, you know, this is, oh, it's just, it's the Lord, brother. 
No, it's your flesh and you're caving in. Don't cave in. But after two years, Portius Festus succeeded Felix. And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So Paul does not cave in. Paul doesn't give up any money. Paul says, you know what? I'll take Christ over convenience. I'll do the hard thing, even when doing the easy thing would gain me freedom. I'll make a stand for Christ, even when it's going to cost me. It might cost him his life. For all he knows, it could. But so great was his trust that the Lord stood by him. The Lord said, you're going to be delivered to Rome. You don't have to worry about it. You're going to Rome. He trusted God. And he didn't cave in to compromise and convenience. May we learn that lesson. Being a Christian very often is not convenient. Very often it's actually controversial. But it always bears fruit. It always causes us to be able to live with a good conscience. And I'll take a good conscience over convenience every time. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us to make the best of every circumstance and situation that you bring us. May we have this kind of boldness in our own lives. Lord, we're grateful for those times when people come to us and ask these hard questions. And may we have an answer for the hope that lies within us. Would you bless us, Lord? Continue to strengthen us in these difficult times that we live in. Lord, we pray for those who are going through hard times, difficult times financially. Lord, maybe even in a sense of just all these miles that we're having to drive with fuel being what it is. Lord, we just cry out to you, our creator God, our sustainer God, the God who provides, who is our Jehovah Jireh, and we ask that you would meet those needs. And We continue to lift up those who are sick. We thank you that Jerry's back with us tonight. We pray that you would continue that work of healing in his body. Uh, Lord, we ask for our brother Chet uh, in Florida. Lord, as he's dealing with all these difficult things from the death of his brother, would you be with him and his family tonight? Lord, we're grateful that we can cast our cares upon you, for you do indeed care for us. And so we do that, Lord. Whatever is weighting us down, we pray, would be lifted by your Spirit. Fill us, Lord, afresh and anew. Bring us together again as we meet again this week. Uh, Lord, to just bask in your glory, to listen, Lord, as your voice speaks to us. We pray that you would now send us out with joy. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, family, for all you uh, who have... um, Friends and family who are of the feminist bent, do not miss Sunday. Uh, I, I am so overjoyed about the study on Sunday. We're taking one of the hardest passages in the New Testament. And, of course, it's that passage that, you know, you, you ladies, it kind of looks like you're supposed to be doormats. Give you a little preview. That's not what it says. Um, so I'm going to mess with everybody on Sunday. All right.